It's an honor to welcome a special guest to Plato's Pod for a dialogue on ancient philosophy and modern technology. Jack Viznik, also known as Lantern Jack, is host of the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast. And Jack, you know I'm a devoted follower of your show. To listeners here, I highly recommend Jack's show for the wealth of meaning and perspective that he and his guests deliver on the works of Plato, as well as on philosophy and life in ancient Greece. So although I'm an amateur philosopher, Jack holds a PhD in ancient philosophy from Princeton University. Jack's mission is to make ancient philosophy widely accessible. To quote his words on the Ancient Greece Declassified website, unlike other fields, the classics have remained largely confined to the ivory tower of academia. It's time to change that. The classics shouldn't be just for people lucky enough to go to certain schools. Everyone should be able to know about the ideas and events that inspired the founders of this republic. Let's declassify the classics. So, Jack, a warm welcome to you from Plato's Pod. I so look forward to our discussion and to seek and hopefully declassify some important connections between ancient philosophy and our technology of today and tomorrow. Thanks so much, James, for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be on your podcast. I've listened to a lot of your episodes, and I'm very impressed with what you've been able to cover and accomplish. So thanks a lot. It's hard to know where to start in exploring technology and philosophy. And I think followers of Plato's pod will have heard me speak regularly about the technological revolution that the quantum computer will soon trigger when the challenges of its physics are resolved. And as someone who follows the technology closely, believe me when I say that the barriers to quantum computing are falling rapidly. The machine's tremendous speed and accuracy will soon be within our grasp, and then we'll face the questions, to what purposes, with what intentions, and according to what sense of meaning. So of course there are other forms of powerful technology now in use and under development. I mean, take for example the internet, a vast and transformative technology without which our daily function would be nearly unimaginable. As a child of the 1960s, I am witness to the incredible changes brought on by the internet because I've lived both with its being and with its non-being. You know, I remember when I first used the internet in 1996, and today, 26 years later, I see around me a world completely reformed by its technology. To be sure, the internet has delivered many good and beneficial things to humanity, not the least of which is the application I'm using for this podcast to communicate with Jack and listeners of Plato's Pod and readers of the Quantum Record. But of course, our lives are also shaped by the growing division and discord among people that the technology has enabled and amplified. And so it makes sense to me as someone who senses in Plato's works a timeless logic to look to the words that he wrote 2,400 years ago for philosophy and wisdom, and to draw on them to shape the best technological world and time that we can possibly imagine. So technology is born of a state of mind, and maybe the more powerful our technology becomes, the more we should inquire into our state of mind. The question may seem metaphysical, but now many see it becoming existential. So Jack, as I think back on the major changes that the internet has brought over a short time, I recall the first episode of your podcast that I ever heard. It was your discussion with Rebecca Goldstein on her 2014 book, Plato at the Googleplex. It was such an engaging talk that, uh, of course, I had to get a copy of the book right away and read it, which I did, and, and I loved it. Rebecca's book begins with a fictional account of Plato arriving in the 21st century, wearing his full ancient Greek regalia and visiting Google's headquarters. You know, there with a media handler at his side who knows nothing of philosophy, he's introduced to the internet, social media, and other electronic tools we use today. It's a hilarious account, but one that we might seriously consider, and particularly so with the very relevant observations that Plato makes in Rebecca's book on the philosophical problems that arise in the way we connect with each other today. So how do you see the relevance of ancient philosophy to our fast-paced technological life in 2022? 
are there some things that need to be understood now from the words that Plato wrote 2,400 years ago in technology, in science, in the way we govern ourselves, and in the way we communicate with each other? Well, you know, my view is that Plato's philosophy today, 2,400 years later, remains as relevant as ever. Uh, in fact, in some ways, I think it's more relevant now than ever, at least than any point in the past few hundred years. I think there's a mental trap that we fall into that you kind of alluded to, where we see all this new technology drastically changing the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives, and we see these scientific breakthroughs, and we get the sense that old wisdom has somehow is no longer relevant. It's like past its expiration date. The world has changed and made older ways of thinking irrelevant. Now, I think that's a really risky mindset because you risk throwing away thousands of years of useful information if it's not true. So the question is, is it true? And in order to rigorously establish that old wisdom that like pre-Darwinian, pre-Newtonian philosophy truly is, or pre-internet even, <laughs> political thinking and ethical thinking is no longer relevant, you'd have to like seriously consider what does Plato say and prove that it's no longer relevant? And what does Aristotle say and prove it's no longer relevant? And no one has ever done that. On the contrary, there are people like uh, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, you just mentioned, like myself, like you, who read these ancient texts and are struck by the points of similarity. And so the question is, how can that be possible? How is it possible that what Plato says about the assembly of ancient Athens sounds so much like what we hear about Twitter or Facebook today. And I think that, well, one reason is that human nature doesn't change, which I think is an obvious point, but it's <laughs> highly contentious in academia today. And the second reason is that I think perhaps more important than technology measured absolutely is the rate of change of technology. So I would propose that it doesn't matter so much if you're operating with the internet or with the latest theater acoustics of ancient Athens, what matters is how fast is your technology changing and, and how is that challenging old structures, bringing in new structures, creating that kind of tension. And I think that ancient Greece or the ancient Mediterranean really from let's say 600 BC until 100 BC is the only period in all of history that we know of where the rate of change of technology approached anywhere near the modern rate. The world that Plato, the world that Aristotle lived in was different than the world that Plato lived in, which was different than the world that Socrates lived in because of this rapid rate of change. Discoveries in mathematics, in astronomy, in engineering, in uh, metalworking, in gear mechanisms, everything, right? Shipping. So they were faced with this roller coaster ride of technology. We have it much more amplified than they did, but it's that rate of change, I think, that's common to then and now, which makes the ancient philosophy relevant. That's a really fascinating observation about the rate of change uh, and looking back at history and thinking about the differences in those rates of change. It makes me think of, uh, I think it was a few years ago I read in The Guardian, it was a piece about, uh, I think he's now passed away, Alan Jacobs, who was a uh, academic in the UK. And he, wrote, he was writing about the challenges to our temporal bandwidth. Uh, and it was a, that was a term that he borrowed, I think, from American author Thomas Pynchon in, in, in the 1970s. But he was writing about how technology and that particularly fast rate of change that you were talking about is really challenging our sense of time and, and our perhaps proportionality of time. And, and it's really interesting the way you brought that back to, to the, the times of Plato and, and the rates of change in, in life at that time. And you know, I don't know 
is there at some point that we need to stand back and, and say, are we able to sustain this rate of change? Do we need to put brakes on it, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, well, this goes into the question of the singularity, right? Are we approaching a singularity or a point where the rate of change will be so fast that no human will be able to keep up with it or even understand where it's going? I mean, this is a whole other topic. I belong to a very, I think, minority uh, opinion that we're not going to get to a singularity, at least anywhere in the near future. I mean, we can go into that if you want, but I think that um, history seems to show these waves of technological progress. And when you're in that wave, it seems like you're going to have an exponential growth of progress forever. But that is a prediction based on a very local historical window, right? So from if you were living in 200 BC, Greece, you might conclude that there's an exponential rate of progress, but that all stopped with the Roman Empire and then the Middle Ages, right? So likewise, now it looks like we have an exponential rate of progress, but judging from history, I think it's likely that that will slow down. And there's also some really interesting studies that have been done about correlation between population growth and technology, that the biggest spurts in technological progress happen when you have the biggest spurts in population growth. And there's probably a feedback loop, like technology allows for more population and then more people generate more technology. But we seem to be headed towards a plateau of population growth by necessity. And so again, if historical trends continue, that will, according to these models, slow down the rate of technological growth, even if we have quantum computing. I mean, I guess that's the unknown variable, right? So that's more in your in your area of uh, expertise. But um, I can't, I, I don't know the future, but I think that there are good arguments that we're not headed towards any kind of runaway technological singularity where we would need to consider putting the brakes. And that's an interesting observation, you know, that this expectation that things will continue to go exponentially, that growth will continue to go exponentially. And, and perhaps, you know, it's when we fail to look back at, at how time actually really works, you know, it's not that sort of linear exponential growth, but there's bumps and uh, uh, dips along the way. And, uh, you know, I guess life is unpredictable like that. And, it, and it, maybe it, I wanted to maybe just explore that topic of unpredictability with you as we continue in, in this discussion. But I wanted to just take it at this point, because you have that experience and depth of experience and expertise in ancient philosophy, both in the academic and in the, in the context of the general public. And so I wanted to ask you, have you observed over the past decade, any sort of significant change in the interest in ancient philosophy? among academics or among the general public? And, and, and if so, what, what's driving that trend? Hmm. I think there definitely are some major changes in the past few decades. I think I can think of a couple. So one is the explosion in popularity of Stoicism, or you could think of it as a revival after one and a half millennia of dormancy of Stoic philosophy as a, as a way of life. And I think part of that can be explained by what we were just talking about, how the rate of technological progress is so fast that we are, as cognitive scientist John Verveke uh, suggests, we're going through a meaning crisis because we have our technological miracles have have encouraged us to cast aside traditional meaning-making rituals, religion, structures, practices, customs, etc. And we haven't found anything to replace them. So we modern humans feel a lack of meaning, a lack of direction, and they start looking for answers. Like I think people look towards Buddhism, they look towards yoga, they look towards Stoicism. And so Stoicism is one of those meaning-providing frameworks. In a way, you could think of it as, as the culmination of ancient Greek ethics. In other words, it's more worked out. Like I think Plato is 
a greater genius than any Stoic philosopher, but the Stoics took Platonic principles and Aristotelian principles and other principles, and they really kind of um, filled out, they completed the operating system, let's say. So mm -hmm. that's one major change in the past few decades. And then the other major change is the movement that's called virtue ethics, which unlike with Stoicism, this is more confined to in academia. And within academia, there's a growing number of scholars who are leading a kind of Aristotelian revival. And I think the cause of that is that up until, let's say, Nietzsche in the 19th century, you had this continuous evolution of philosophy in the West from the medieval theologians like Aquinas to the Renaissance thinkers to the Enlightenment thinkers, all the way to modern analytic and continental philosophy. Of course, every generation is challenging the previous one, but it's still one tree. Every branch is connected to the previous branch or to the root. And then you get someone like Nietzsche who says, forget this, I'm going to jump off the tree and I'm going to examine its roots. And he finds all these problems and he's, you know, he's more of a, <laughs> a radical philosopher in that sense, literally like radical, radix meaning root. So he says, you know, we need to jettison half of this whole enterprise. And then you get people that do that as well in perhaps more careful analytical ways in the 20th century, like Elizabeth Anscombe, a student of Wittgenstein, who wrote the famous paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, in which she said a lot of these concepts that modern philosophers use and take for granted and assume that they are elemental principles, like the will, like duty, like responsibility. These are actually not fundamental concepts. These are baggage-laden concepts that came through a theological history and are now used by mainly atheist philosophers. So there's a contradiction there. And basically, there's there's all these unexamined principles that need to be actually examined, right? And then you get Bernard Williams doing the same thing. And so, I mean, a similar kind of critique. And that that kind of critique of the whole tree of modern philosophy has led to this new group of virtue ethicists. And they kind of go back to Aristotle and say, okay, we're going to set aside the past 2000 years and we're going to try to independently kind of reinvent the wheel, build a new foundation for ethics. So I think those are the two biggest, let's say, trends in ancient philosophy in the past few decades. That's really interesting. Is there, uh, I'm wondering, is there an attempt to kind of reconcile trends over time to take perhaps the best of ancient philosophy and to match that with or combine that with the the best of some of the newer thinking going on? Or is it branching further out? Is it diverging from the root or is it converging to the root? And, and do you see more people interested in ancient philosophy itself? I think there's a it's always diverging and always converging. It's a dialectical process. So every time, I mean, keep in mind that these virtue ethicists, they they live and work in departments controlled by analytic philosophers, that is modern cutting edge philosophers. So everything they do is immediately challenged by the analytic philosophers and vice versa. So there's a constant tension, which I think is very fruitful. Now, as to the question, are there more people interested in ancient philosophy? I can't answer that because I don't, I, I don't know the data, but I think that there are a lot of podcasters like, you know, like yourself and like myself and others like Doug Metzger, who have helped make these ideas more accessible to the public. And I think that at least I hope that we will see a flourishing, to use an Aristotelian term, of ancient philosophy in the next century. That's fascinating. It's definitely interesting to see which way it's going to go. And and certainly, I think, you know, from my own experience, uh, I think th th there seems to be a growing interest. I, you know, I, I'm seeing more people engaging in discussion and and taking some interest in in these older ideas, may, maybe older in, in the sense of 
when they were written, but not in the sense of their applicability. And so, you know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes, I guess. You mentioned John Verbeke, I mean, in, in the fact that he has spoken of a crisis of meaning in today's world. And in the recent interview that you did with John, you explored the nature of reality with him. And I'm just wondering, how do you see human intelligence fitting into our evolving conception of reality and the meaning that we make of reality? I'm asking this as natural sciences are delivering a, a deeper and sometimes very confusing view of physical reality. I mean, touching on the very quantum nature of the universe and the quantum observer effect, which we don't fully understand. And yet it's something that's fundamentally necessary to the quantum computer. And I'm wondering, is there a tendency in the world now to discount the mind and its potential in the, in the very construction of the universe? It's as somehow as if the mind is separate from the very being of the universe. How does the, the sense of our own consciousness fit into things in, in terms of the, the trends that, uh, that we've been talking about? Yeah, so, well, just to start off, you mentioned that science today is delivering a deeper and sometimes confusing view of physical reality, right? And I just want to point out that that was happening in Plato's day, okay? So that's another issue that they faced and we face. I guess the most obvious example of that is the discovery of irrational numbers by the Pythagoreans. Right? They realized that even though you can draw a right triangle with integer sides, you can never express the hypotenuse in cases where the hypotenuse is irrational, you can never express it using numbers. And that blew their minds, I think. It realized that the tools they thought they could use to express physical reality or natural reality don't always work. And so I think those kinds of discoveries led to the question of how does the mind relate to the world? And I think that there was a kind of spectrum of opinions. There were people like Parmenides that thought that the world is largely illusory and the true world which the mind can see can only be arrived at mentally. And there were others like the Ionian, more empirical natural philosophers that thought, no, look, reality is just reality and our mind is just creating measuring tools to measure reality. I think we have that same range of opinions today. And I'm not an expert in all of them uh, or even most of them, but I think you're right that scientific progress tends to make us so amazed and impressed with the measuring tools that we start to minimize the way or, or to forget about our mind's role in constructing reality. So I think there's an important, again, dialectic that needs to be worked out there. And I think John Ravakey and his colleagues in the field of cognitive science are doing some really interesting work there of trying to bring back the conversation of how the mind works. Like, what is the mind doing when it does science? And I think that's fruitful for philosophy and for science. Definitely, and your your discussion with John was was fascinating. You know, a number of the points that were brought up, and what what you said about the you know the measuring tools that we use are becoming so precise. They're, they're revealing such interesting information and, and great quantity of information. I think, as you said, that we sometimes forget about the role of the mind. It makes me actually think of Plato's Theaetetus, in which the question was, "Is man the measure of all things?" I wonder, you know, the the kind of technology that we have in the world today that is delivering these precise measurements. Is it making us think that everything is measurable? It seems, at least to me, when, when I'm interacting with people, people ask for empirical proof as if there's a measurement for everything. And yet it seems to me also that we have this mind in us that's invisible, can never be measured, but people don't really seem to, to talk about it, at least at, a, at an everyday level. And I'm, I'm trying to wonder how the reality of the invisible can somehow be brought to the fore? And, and is there a role for ancient philosophy in that? 
Well, I think there's certainly a role for Platonism in that, because I think the fundamental principle of Platonism is what we would call metacognition or knowing the limits of your knowledge, right? I mean, that's the entire Socratic project, at least as Plato describes it, of this kind of performative ignorance or of self-imposed ignorance or of constantly reminding yourself that you're ignorant in order to approach learning with an open mind and without distorting preconceptions and, and so forth and un, untested opinions. So yeah, I think, again, just, I'm going to keep doing this because it's it needs to be said, just as in Plato's day, when the impressive accomplishments of natural philosophers were making people think, oh yeah, we're we're going to get to, I think there's a, there's a line in Aristotle, uh, in Cicero somewhere, where he, he said, oh yeah, we're going to get to a point soon where all philosophical questions will be answered. And we, we feel that way too, because we, again, we, we see the rate of progress and then we make a prediction based on that small historical experience that it'll go on forever. And so we will achieve perfect, unwavering, measuring abilities very soon. And I think Plato is there to to remind us. He's like the, the whispering attendant of the, the Roman triumph receiver. So when a Roman general came back to Rome victorious and was awarded a triumph where they could parade in the streets of Rome and be cheered by the crowd, there was an attendant who would sit next to him and whisper, you are not a god. You are not a god. You are not a god. All right, just to <laughs> prevent these generals from getting highfalutin ideas that they can become, you know, dictators or, or kings or whatever. So Plato is there like that, whispering to us, you don't know everything. You don't know everything. You don't know everything. And that is, I think, a very healthy reminder, especially during times when when we can be drunk on the achievements of technology. That's a, I, I like that whispering analogy. That's That really, I think, is very suited to today's time. Uh, and, and certainly, it doesn't hurt to have that whisper go on in the background and, and just continually remind us of things, you know, and certainly in Plato, I mean, Socrates was held by the Oracle of Delphi to be the wisest man alive for he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. And I guess it's that acknowledgement of the limits of our knowledge that that seems so important. You, you were talking about how that sense of knowledge progresses over time. And I, I would say, you know, in two seasons of group discussions on Plato's pod, we've touched on the general perception that knowledge only advances in a linear way that knowledge only increases from past to future. And so it seems to be that we think that we necessarily know more than Plato's generation did 2,400 years ago. In fact, I remember a debate I had with uh, someone who claimed that the geometry that Plato taught in his academy was no further advanced than the geometry that's taught in high schools today. So it's just, you know, I think that assumption that's that's made there that's always in the background and and so again, it's it's as if this linear progression of knowledge is almost an axiom of knowledge over time. Yet on your own podcast, you featured an interview about the mysterious Antikythera device that was discovered about 100 years ago off Greece. The device is 2,000 years old, seems to be a very intricately machined astronomical calculator. And certainly, you know, we know that many ancient civilizations had great astronomical knowledge. In fact, some of their knowledge that has been lost has only recently been rediscovered. Certainly, the Egyptians and the Mayans were among those. And so two millennia later, after the Antikythera device was, was constructed with whatever means they constructed it with, we don't completely understand it. You know, we don't understand what it was used for. We don't understand its, its precision and how that was possible with the technology they had at the time. You know, I'm thinking with the power that technology provides to us today, do we have a problem admitting that we don't know and what we don't know? And, 
And do we acknowledge uncertainty and do we develop technology thinking that we know more than we actually do? And, and again, trying to think of the consequences of this as, as our technology becomes more powerful. Well, that's a great question. And we live in an era where we have all these like big history books like Harari's Sapiens or there's many of them that try to give you this huge overview picture of the Stone Age until the modern period or like Walter Scheidel's book that I had on my podcast of economic inequality from the Stone Age to the modern period, right? Scientific thought or human thought from the Stone Age to the modern age. You have all these kind of broad overview books and they're really fun to read and I think they're great accomplishments, but one beef I have with all of them is that they have this linear view. They make the history of humanity from the Stone Age to the present appear like an unbroken succession of advances. And if you look at the timeline, you'll see that there's big gaps. There's an awesome figure that I, I, I saw at some point that had a list of all the major geometric and mathematical proofs that have been done. There's like nothing until 600 BC when the Pythagoreans started going. Then there is a huge amount of proofs accomplished until like after Archimedes, so until about 100 BC. And then there's like this huge gap until the Renaissance and hardly any major geometric discoveries were made during that entire time. Another such uh, anecdotal piece of information is that the data that Ptolemy, the astronomer, had was better than the data that Galileo had. So the the idea that that we just have this linear march forward is, is totally wrong. And I think that people kind of sense that. I, I, I'm fascinated by the current obsession with like zombie apocalypse movies <laughs> or like dystopian <laughs> movies. I feel like there's a sense in the zeitgeist that what we think of as this inevitable march forward is actually a very fragile enterprise and that so many things could go wrong. And even if just a few things go wrong, you could have you know a collapse of the entire Jenga tower. So I think that there is... I think people feel the instability of the modern technological, political, scientific march forward. They, they feel that there's something delicate about it. I, I would share in that observation. I, I think that that's, you know, maybe that goes to what John Verbeke was talking about in the meaning crisis. I mean, we have all of this technology and all of this power, but what is, where is it all pointing to? And, you know, it seems there's a lot of talk, for example, in the younger in the youth, for example, that there's a sense of lack of purpose, maybe that uh, you know, they, they look at the, the news and it's all terrible stuff. And they wonder where is, is it only going to head in that direction? You know, and, and, and again, that sort of linear sense of time. So if, if we're on a bad path or a path to destruction now, is it just going to continue to accelerate down that same path? And I wonder, you know, in Plato's time, I mean, I certainly, you know, I, I guess there was incidents or, or times like this where there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear of the future. And how would they address that back then versus how we're addressing it now? Is there, is there a different, fundamentally different way in the approach? Has our technology in a way intervened in the natural way that we would approach that kind of concept of what the future is going to be like? That's a really tough question. I think as far as Plato's own time period cons was concerned, there was one big difference, which is that our world is very globalized right now. Everything is interconnected. Like, you know, when the supply chain is disrupted in China, we feel it on our shelves here in, in North America. And when the dollar has inflation, then other currencies 
suffer when the wheat in Ukraine is blocked up, then half of Africa has a shortage. I think that that did happen in antiquity, more in the Hellenistic period and the early Roman period. But in Plato's time, that was a little bit before that happened. So there were all these independent states. And I think that you know Athens was one of over a thousand independent Greek city-states. So there was more of the idea that if one city fails and falls and has its own little zombie apocalypse, well, other cities will carry on. There wasn't yet a sense that everything's going to go down together as you would have had in the Hellenistic and Roman period. Okay, mm -hmm. so in that respect, um, I think they had a different conception of how things could go south and what would happen. And I think that that's what motivates Plato to write the Republic and then later the laws. He's like, okay, well, each of these individual city-states is a fleeting experiment. So if we need to gather together a bunch of survivors and hop on ships and go found a new polis somewhere, how can we make a better blueprint for a better polis that will not suffer that apocalyptic ending? You know, so that's my answer for that. That's interesting. And it, you know, especially since I just finished a three-part series on Plato's pod on the statesman and one of the key messages in the statesman is that we tend to cling to these old laws as if they're written in stone and in these ancient constitutions and ancient traditions we tend to cling on to but you know maybe there's a point where we need to perhaps take a look back at history and and say well what could we do differently if we had taken different paths on on the path that led us to where we are now you know where we could we have been instead and I'm wondering if there's enough questioning of that sort of thing now that we, we feel almost as if it seems that some people feel that because things are the way they are, they have to be that way going forward, that there's no fundamental change that can be made. And as you said, maybe back then the city-states were, there was many of them and it was easier to conduct that experiment on a city-by-city -city level, whereas now it's much more difficult with these very large nations and entrenched interests and all of that. But I wonder if, if that advice that the visitor familia brings in the statesman that we need to just reevaluate what we have been doing and the rules that we've established for ourselves and just really understand, are they, are they really made for now or were they made for a previous period? And again, I, I guess that maybe goes back to the question I asked about the trends and in interest in ancient philosophy is, is there some of that in what people are considering when they study ancient philosophy now? Are they, are they looking at how we got to where we are now? You know, kind of that account of the reasons why of where we are now and, and starting to question what fundamental changes could be made in the, in the world. Is, is the study of ancient philosophy bringing any of that sort of questioning to the fore? Yes, but in tiny, tiny circles. So the number of ancient philosophers or people who study ancient philosophy is already 1% of the number of philosophers. And then the number of those who do, let's say, political institutions is like 10% of that. So you're looking at a handful of people in all of North America that might do that, right? So it's very, very niche. I think that what you said about re-examining our laws, I think that's, that is very good advice, very important, but it has to go in two ways, not just critically, but also... Um, there's no really word for it, but it's not enough to just critically look at the laws. Oh, this law was written when um, you know people didn't have the internet, so let's throw that away. Or, or this law was written before modern firearms existed, etc. What's really lacking, I think, is an appreciation of how. Well, I mean, to take the U.S. example, how amazing 
the U.S. Constitution is. Here you have the the founders, and they basically dug up ancient blueprints that hadn't been tried in millennia, and they were damaged. They didn't have all the information, and they tried to. It's like they they discovered an ancient machine or or a blueprint for an ancient machine that hadn't been built in millennia, and they somehow managed to build it, and it worked for now. 200, what, 50 years? That's amazing. That's totally amazing. And nobody acknowledges that. Nobody acknowledges in academia how incredible a miracle that actually is. So yes, we should always examine the laws and critique them and modify them. But we should also understand how the laws work together to create a functioning, basically, ship ship of state. You can't just replace the parts on the ship that you don't like without considering what allows the ship to float in the first place. And I think that one thing that the founders could have done better <laughs> is what Plato says in the laws. He says the, the, the lawgiver has to write like a little paragraph explaining the purpose of each law so that when people then come to re-examine it and critique it, they have the little footnotes. Okay, the point of this was for this. These were our concerns. I guess you could, you could think of like the Federalist Papers as providing that, but I think that, that that would actually be a good practice going forward. Like when we amend the constitution or when we change a law, like let's actually have a discussion about what the purpose of this is. Let's try to distill it into a very simple message and put that next to the law. I mean, that's, that's I think, a proposal from thousands of years ago that might have some utility today. Entirely logical. And, and certainly it does help to remind us of that term that I mentioned, the account of the reasons why. And it's a term that I use a lot because it's... It, came from the Mino where Socrates is talking about knowledge as recollection. And then he goes on to further define knowledge as the account of the reasons why. And sometimes, sometimes I think this knowledge gets lost or we tend to put our current situation or our understanding of our current situation. We, we tend to apply that to times past where we, we don't have knowledge of all of the circumstances that they were facing and why they did what they did. And I think that's that's maybe a key thing about the nature of time that we maybe just, you know, as things are going so fast now, as technology is driving things so quickly, we're forgetting more and more of that, what life was like in the, those times and what they were reacting to or considering when they wrote those laws or established customs or, or any of that. And so it's an interesting observation. And it leads me to a, a topic that I wanted to discuss, and this is the question of mindsets. And mindsets can change over time. And I guess maybe our electronic technology is really changing mindsets. And maybe people don't really understand how their mindsets are being changed by this technology. And and so here, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a concept that I borrow from Ursula Franklin, which is the concept of the technological mindset. So I find Ursula Franklin's philosophy of technology to hold a, a very deep truth. Ursula was a physicist, a professor, metallurgist, humanist, and a Holocaust survivor. And she spoke of the way that technology in use in any time is a reflection of the mindsets of the users. And she defined technology simply by its Greek roots of techne and logia as the way we do things. And so technology can be manual, it can be mechanical, it can be electronic, and all three types of technology are in use today. And yet, when you say the word technology to somebody, immediately they'll think electronic, but really it's all three forms and it's really just the way we do things. So Ursula placed technology in two categories. Technology is either prescriptive, which is to say that it does not evolve to human needs, but requires us to comply to its needs. 
or else technology is holistic. And so as a Holocaust survivor, uh, Ursula advocated for holistic technology that adapts to human needs and especially for our need for peace. And, you know, she was famous for saying peace is not the absence of war, but the absence of fear, which is the presence of justice. And so I'm wondering, as you consider technology today, quite literally as the way we do things, what type of philosophy do you see reflected in our technological tools that we're using and developing? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really deep question. Well, first, a, a kind of semantic point to unpack the etymology of technologia as being the way we do things is not sufficient because it's literally the study of the way we do things, the study of the way we craft or machine things. So it's a kind of meta-level analysis. That's what technology is, according to the Greek etymology of the word. So to engage in technologia is to examine the tools you use and to therefore improve them, right? And the question is, what is driving you to improve them? And I think that's where her distinction between prescriptive and holistic comes in, because are you driven to improve them in order to make more profit? Or are you driven to improve them in order to increase human flourishing, as Aristotle would would want? Once again, I think that that's a dialectical tension that's been there forever, because on the one hand, profit is what drives so much of our society, right? So how do you how do you get away from that? I'm not sure there is a way. On the other hand, technology as Plato wrote, you know, with the myth of Thoth and the invention of writing is always a double-edged sword. With every technological advancement, you gain something and you lose something. In the case of writing, you gained record-keeping, but you lost the power of memory. You know, these ancient bards could memorize amounts of data that we couldn't even fathom because we just opened up Wikipedia and it's right there. So it is a tension. I think that, and this is another core concern of the Republic. When Plato is trying to construct the ideal society, he's very concerned about incentive structures. He doesn't use those words, doesn't have that terminology, but it's clear, I think that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking, how do we set up the right motivations in the society so that people are motivated by good things, productive things, things that promote the well-being of others? And if you have that incentive structure set up, I think you will have good, beneficial, holistic technology. And if you don't, if you allow profit or honor or power to be the driving forces, which Plato thinks is usually the case in imperfect societies, then you're going to have technology that reflects that. That's interesting. And, and certainly profit is a significant motivation. I mean, a lot of the technology that's being developed is for private profit by private companies. It does concern me, I guess, that especially with the development of the quantum computer, I've been searching for any sort of philosophical or ethical discussions on the quantum computer. And there are very few of them, or at least I've encountered very few of them. And yet this machine is going to deliver incredible power. I mean, it's going to operate at thousands and thousands of times faster than the current computers that we use. Its accuracy is potentially unlimited. And with a tool like that, one would think that there should be some ethical and philosophical considerations, and, and yet there just doesn't seem to be discussion about it. And I wonder if it's maybe because there's an assumption that it will not come to, to active use for another decade or two, and therefore we'll have time to sort it all out. Or is there something else at play that we just you can almost think that we're just stuck on a certain path and there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to let this machine be developed and just see where it goes. Is there a motivation there or is there something 
is there, is there some way or, or some precedent for how some philosophy could be inserted in a discussion like that? Yeah, well, <laughs> I actually think that ancient philosophy has more as a better chance of being fruitful for those kinds of discussions than modern philosophy, even which sounds paradoxical, right? How can we're talking about quantum computers, AI? Why would you go back to the ancients? I don't know if you if you had AI in your thought process here, but I think that you know one of the implications of quantum computing is that it could power AI, right? So is that mm-hmm. is that on your mind? Absolutely, and, and yeah, yeah. AI and, and the holographic projections that you would not know the difference between the computer's projection and reality. Yeah, so there are discussions, of course, on the ethics of AI. I've encountered and searched for them, and all the ones I found have been incredibly disappointing and banal. And I think the reason for that is that this is something I talk about in my in my podcast, but modern philosophy has a very restricted ethical framework where I think the implicit highest good in modern Western analytic philosophy is the elimination of suffering. So the the kind of end goal, the highest aim, the the ultimate criterion for whether you're ethical or not is, are you eliminating or reducing suffering in the world? And that sounds like a really noble goal. But I think that Plato and the Stoics showed that that doesn't really work philosophically. It doesn't stand. You can't create a, an ethical system that's consistent using that as your ultimate end. And so they played with ideas like virtue and order and cosmic order as alternative highest goods in their systems, right? And the Stoics took that further. And, and I think they, they tried to figure out what's the formula for good action. If we take into account promotion of the order of things, of flourishing, of virtue, is there a way that an individual human can kind of calculate their moral duty? I wrote a book on that. And this has been largely forgotten, I think. A lot of the books that they wrote about this didn't survive, and modern thinkers never or seldom imagined that the ancients could have done that. And so now, with all this talk about, is there an ethics algorithm? Can we program a computer to be ethical? These modern thinkers seem to, they're totally unaware that's been attempted. And I think the Stoics have a better ethics algorithm than any modern proposal. And it's not because they were smarter, but it's because they, they, they did it for hundreds of years. They had hundreds of great minds working hundreds of years on this problem. And so we can't, in the space of 10 years, we cannot have that much of a result as they did with so much time and brain power and experience. So I think that it would be really fruitful for modern kind of AI ethicists to look at the stoic formula for what it means to be ethical and how an individual actor, whether an AI or a human, kind of calculate their morally, you know, the right thing to do. Uh, I think that would, be, that would be really fruitful. And if I have time and energy and opportunity, I will, I certainly want to have those conversations in the future. Very essential conversations, again, with the power of technology. I read an article recently about AI's advancement to creating a machine that talks almost exactly like a human. And it took something, if I remember the number correctly, it was an insanely large number, like 500 billion circuits to replicate what they think the neurons are doing in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then the question comes, well, okay, well, that's a great scientific achievement. But then my immediate question is why? Why do you need this machine that replicates what we do based on what we program the machine to do? I mean, 
is anybody looking at who is programming the machines? And, uh, or are we just more interested in solving the question of how to do this rather than why we do it? Yeah, no, certainly. I think that in, in this case, the technological efforts are outpacing the ethical, philosophical investigations and uh, considerations about it. Yeah. And certainly you've talked about the role of memory, the story that, of Thuth, for example, that writing is a good invention or, or a helpful invention, but then it creates a loss of memory. And, and you, know, you talked about how the ancients could remember great things. It, actually, in my series that I'm doing on the Parmenides now, I'm struck by this whole conversation was something that had been memorized word for word, whereas I don't think anybody now could do that sort of uh, memorization. And so we need to be able to recall time and the, the series of causes and effects over time, I guess, is the, the key to really understand where we're headed. It makes me think too about what I understand was the trend in AI back in the 1960s, which was to build what they called good old-fashioned AI, which is AI that would have common sense. So it wouldn't be necessarily programmed for every permutation and combination that the programmers could expect, but that it would be able to exercise some sort of common sense with some basic parameters that are established. And maybe there is a trend maybe to start going back in that direction. Whereas for a long time recently, I, I think that there has been a feeling that we could just put as much data into these machines as possible and cause them to predict things perfectly. And I think we see examples of how that didn't turn out. You know, there's a, I finished reading last summer, Melanie Mitchell's wonderful book, Artificial Intelligence, a guide for thinking humans. And in it, she talks about that famous Google error with the identification of the photo of two black people as gorillas. And that was in, I think that was 2016. And just, you know, recently, just a few weeks ago, as I was downloading an image for my discussion on the statesman, I was using images of uh, pharaohs. And so I downloaded an Im image of a bust of a pharaoh with, with a mask. And the computer identified it not so helpfully as person wearing a mask. Hmm. And I thought there, well, okay, I know that it's a pharaoh, but what if a child downloaded this image? And what if the child believed what the computer said to it, that this was just a person wearing a mask? And would the child ever then inquire as to whether this could be something else? Would the child ever know that the pharaohs had existed if the child just simply believed what the computer told it? And I found that kind of odd that why do we need the computer to tell us what this image is? I, I clearly know what the image is. Somehow, where do we stop allowing the machines to do what maybe the mind is is better capable of doing? Yeah, uh, this is one of my big pet peeves. I mean, I, first of all, I, I hate when the computer thinks it knows what I want to do better than I do. Like, especially Microsoft Word, when it tries to format something I'm writing other than how I want to format it. I was like, no, I want a new paragraph here. It's like, sorry, you can't do that. But to your point about labeling, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that when computers or anybody teachers, parents just tell you what something is, I think that is pedagogically destructive to a young mind. I remember uh, a video interview of uh, the physicist Richard Feynman, where he talks about his father and how he taught him when he was a young boy. And he, he says how he was playing with one of those little carts that has a little handle that children have, like you know, the little red carts where you put your toys and then you pull it, has four wheels. 
And he had a little ball, I think, in the cart. And he noticed that when he suddenly starts or stops the cart, the ball either keeps rolling or it bumps up against the wall or something. And he asked his dad, why does the ball do that? Now, if he asked Google or Alexa, Google would just say, oh, this is the principle of inertia or momentum, a, a mass that is moving will keep on moving and a mass that's at rest will stay at rest unless a force acts upon it. Okay. Well, that's not the answer that Feynman's dad gave. Feynman's dad said, no one knows exactly why this is the case, but it seems to be that objects in motion tend to go, etc. right? I think that's an, that's an important story, significant, because we're talking about one of the greatest physicists who ever lived. And so obviously the, the way that his parents taught him is had a huge effect, right? I think if his dad just said, oh, it's just F equals MA, it's just the conservation of momentum, then young Feynman would have thought, okay, this is just, it's just facts. Like any other fact, I can find it on Google. There's nothing interesting, nothing wonders about him. But by telling him, no one knows exactly why this is the case, which is true for most scientific things, by the way, they're just observations, right? But it seems to be this, and that's something you could explore more. Well, then you have the birth, the the foundation story of a great scientific thinker, you know? So I think, yeah, this obsession with labeling and with giving an answer for everything is detrimental to human thought. And I think if we all had less of that, we would think better. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, and I think we forget too, that the machines are being programmed by humans who make mistakes. I mm -hmm. make mistakes. Everyone else makes mistakes. The, the programmers are not exempt from making errors. And so these errors, especially when, when we rely so much on this data and so much on this predictability, we're maybe at risk of not knowing what we don't know and or not admitting what we don't know and, and becoming too reliant on it. And so uh, mm -hmm. it, I really love that example of Feynman and his dad, actually, because I used last season was one of my episodes. I can't remember which one. It was a, a clip I found of Feynman. It was two or three minute clip of an interview in which his he was talking about his dad telling him about a bird. And, you know, he said, you know, mm -hmm. my dad could tell me all the details about the bird, what color it is, what size it is and all of this. But then he said, you would still know nothing about the bird. <laughs> and uh, I found that was a really, really compelling example. Uh, so uh, and, and there was a great scientist that I think understood that there was a lot of new things still to be discovered. And, and certainly he was he was a, was a brilliant explorer in science. To talk about science, I mean, as someone who's deeply interested in physics and geometry myself, I see so many mathematical and geometric references throughout Plato's work. I mean, he was, after all, a geometer, and above the door to his academy were the words that no one who was without geometry enter these doors. People see him now, I think, primarily as a philosopher, and I'm wondering why is that? You know, has, has science lost, or is, it, or is it losing its connection to philosophy? And I'm thinking, again, about the opening pages of Rebecca Goldstein's Plato at the Googleplex, in which she lampoons philosophy poo-pooers, she calls them, mm -hmm. among the scientific community, specifically one who I witnessed uh, with that very attitude in Toronto some years back when he was speaking. So I'm wondering, are, are philosophy deniers on the increase in the scientific community, or do you sense that science and philosophy are beginning to find some sort of common cause now? I feel like there's a few separate questions embedded in, in what you just said. Mm -hmm. So first, why do people not see the importance of geometry in Plato? Well, because that's because of the kind of people that read Plato today. The only people who end up reading Plato in ancient Greek, for the most part, are people who begin in literature, 
So it's mainly people interested in literature and language that end up in a classics department. And they're the only ones that are then taught Greek and then can read Plato in the original. So for someone who has a scientific set of interests or background to get to the point where they can read Plato ancient Greek, they have to take a very unusual path. They either have to endure many classes on topics that they don't care about, or they need to learn Greek on their own. Now they do exist, but there are not that many of them. And Rebecca Goldstein is one of the few who has the scientific appreciation and also is able to read Plato and understand him well. Then uh, as for philosophy poo-pooers, I think a lot of the poo-pooing is legitimate. And I am a big philosophy poo-pooer if, if you're talking about modern analytic philosophy or, or even modern continental philosophy. I think most of it is nonsense. It's highly impressive, logical wordsmithing that has no substance or applicability. So in a way, I, I kind of, I think I share more with the scientific philosophy poo-pooers than I do with the philosophers they're making fun of. I just think that they don't know the whole picture because there are so few scientifically competent people who have the educational background to read Plato or Aristotle, there's a disconnect. And I think that that's part of, I think, your mission and my mission and Rebecca Goldstein's mission is to create the bridge between these ideas, the time-tested philosophical ideas of the past thousands of years, not just the latest fads, create a bridge between that and scientific thinking, current practitioners of science. And I think that is happening and it's accelerating. And I think the future is bright in that department. That's good to hear. And, and, and the, the bridge analogy is one that I find very useful to think about. And I mean, certainly the idea of analogy is something that's promoted by, again, in the Statesman, the visitor from Elia says that sometimes you, you need analogy to understand complex things. And you, you spoke about one earlier when you, when you referred to the ship of state analogy in the Republic. If you see that trend, that, that bridge being built What's causing that bridge to be built? Does technology have any role in that bridge building exercise? You know, in, in spite of the problems that technology causes, is there a role for technology in building and, and strengthening that bridge between the, the natural sciences and philosophy? Is there, is there other things that are causing that trend? I can think of a few things. I'm not sure how technology really plays into it. I mean, if we look at, say, John Verbeke again, cognitive scientist, He's an example of a bridge builder, right? So he is up to date on the latest scientific advances, but he also sees the meaning crisis. He sees the problem in our ways of thinking, and he sees the uh, cognitive biases. He sees the overconfidence that we have in our tools and machines. He sees the untested assumptions in our ways of thought, and he performs the kind of archaeology, looking at ancient changes in the way we thought, like the Greek philosophical revolution, similar revolutions in uh, ancient India and China, etc. So he's making that bridge to kind of fill in the gaps that I guess our technological mindset has exposed. I think a lot of scientists are also philosophers by nature. Not all, but I think most scientists have a philosophical instinct. That's why they're doing science. And when they pick up a philosophy book at the local bookstore, to get more philosophy, they're disappointed because they see all these words that they don't know what they mean, talking about issues that they don't understand why they're relevant. And they're like, okay, this is just nonsense. So they, they become the, the poo-pooers of philosophy, right? And then if you give them a book of Plato, there's a similar barrier to entry. Unless they're willing to put in like a couple of days of familiarizing themselves with the concepts and ancient context, they're going to have a similar response. So you need to 
you need to build that bridge. But once you do, and, it's, and I think it's much easier for the ancient stuff because the concepts are so simple, tangible, you know, like every question that Plato and Aristotle asked can be expressed in simple language in one sentence. Like, what is justice? Okay, what is beauty? What is friendship? So I think when scientists get lifted over that initial threshold, they recognize something that they instinctively do. They see, okay, what Plato is doing is what I do. I have modern tools. I look at particles or the cosmic microwave background or, you know, the double helix, but I'm doing the same thing he, he's doing, you know? So uh, I think as the bridge is built by diverse people, there's a natural affinity between scientists and what they do and ancient philosophy, such as that of Plato. That's fascinating. And um, I'm certainly in some of the words of the scientists that I hear. And in fact, in my latest episode that's going online tomorrow on the Parmenides, the first part of the Parmenides, I was led to quote Einstein in that, in that debate about the nature of quantum mechanics and, and whether the, you know, the Copenhagen interpretation, which says that the waveform collapses when you make an observation. And Einstein's challenge to that was, well, does the moon only exist when you look at it? Which I found to be philosophical question. And certainly he he did take a philosophical stance on a number of things. So yeah, certainly, certainly there are those out there. And I guess maybe it's a question, is it of finding a common language? I, I think you pointed to a problem that people have with Plato is that you really have to understand the language that he's talking. And it really takes time and effort to understand that. The forms, for example, I, I struggled with the forms until I made my way through the sophist. And I struggled with the sophist on the first few passes. Honestly, it was not clicking with me. And then all of a sudden it clicked with me in that part where the visitor talks about the five essential forms, that which is change, rest, the same and the different. And then all of a sudden the idea of the forms suddenly gelled in my mind and I was able to understand it. But it, that was after a lot of effort. And so I wonder if part of the problem with philosophy is either the language is too dense or maybe it's necessarily so. And then sometimes it's cryptic. I, I, I'm thinking about your recent episode uh, called Why People Hate Plato. And I think one of the issues with Plato is certainly the accessibility and, the, and, and how cryptic he can be. That conclusion in the Parmenides, if one is not, nothing is. I mean, for heaven's sakes, is that a universal conclusion. When he says the one, what is he talking? Why doesn't he just tell us what we should think the one is? And that's, I guess, maybe that's the, the challenge with people now is that it's the lack of a common language. I don't know. Is, is there a common language that philosophy and science can speak that would help to extend that bridge? In terms of the bridge, I was thinking the role of technology maybe to help us communicate you know, in the way that, for example, John Verbeke can communicate to us his ideas through interviews like the one that you did and spread that good learning and information and, and that sense of meaning to us. Whereas before, without the internet, we wouldn't be able to do that. And so I guess a whole bunch of thoughts there, but you know, just question about a, yeah. a common language. I think that's absolutely crucial. And first of all, just, just to defend Plato a little bit, yes, there are some dialogues that are very cryptic, but overall he is one of the clearest, most lucid philosophers philosophical authors in all of history. His way of doing philosophy is revolutionary compared to the pre-Socratics who are very cryptic. They speak in these puzzles and riddles, much like uh, the, the Tao Te Ching is puzzles and riddles. That was the standard way of doing philosophy before that. And then Plato comes along and says, no, 
I'm going to give this clear, dramatized, narrated, entertaining story, basically. And most of his dialogues are extremely clear. I mean, they're so clear that Plato's style of writing is considered the gold standard for ancient Greek writing. Like when students used to learn how to write ancient Greek, it's an art that's been lost, but I think it's very important to learn to appreciate the language, to have an active command of it. When people used to learn how to write ancient Greek, they, they used Plato as the model because he's just so clear. Of course, he does have some obscure dialogues, but I think that's because he's struggling with obscure concepts that he himself doesn't understand fully. So he's doing the best he can, but he's also showing you that like those are the dialogues where you approach the frontier of his claim to knowledge. Now, since Plato, I think the problem of not having a common language has has exploded completely. And this goes back to incentives. Unfortunately, every everybody who wants to be known as a hotshot philosopher has a lot of incentives to make up new words. Because when you make up new words, you, you look really smart. And so basically every thinker since the Stoics till today has introduced new words. So you'll, you'll have somebody come along and say, oh, and now I would like to discuss a concept that I like to call blah. And I conceive of this as blah, 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 blah. You know, so they're always introducing terms. I think that's criminal philosophically because instead of trying to create connections with, with previous thinkers and have interchangeable parts, let's say, you know, this is like the great revolution of American manufacturing in the 1800s, right? To make standard sizes, like standard size screws, standard threads, standard parts, right? So that if your tool breaks down in Nebraska and you bought it in Massachusetts, you can fix it, right? We don't have that in philosophy. Every philosopher is free and even encouraged to just make up their own terminology and not make use of earlier terminology. And so there's this huge redundancy where there are tons of words that overlap in different ways. Sometimes they're, they're the same thing, but different thinkers use different words. And it's like a complete mess. It's an absolute disaster, chaotic mess. I think that this is one of the one of the reasons why people like Anscombe and Williams, who we mentioned earlier, critique modern philosophy and say, let's go back to Aristotle. Let's rebuild the wheel because what we currently have is a soup and it would be great to clarify our concepts. So look, when, what Kant calls an affectation is the same as what Aquinas called this, or it's similar in this way. You know what I mean? Like that would, that would be a huge step forward if we could clarify and standardize our concepts. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and certainly from my perspective as an amateur philosopher, you know, sometimes I get these terms thrown at me and I'm, I'm scratching my head at, and I don't know what, I don't know the terminology. And maybe that's what is so profound about Plato for me, especially is the dialogue form. So it's almost like his entire corpus of work is an analogy because in my mind, as I'm reading them, I'm actually putting myself in that scene. I'm, I'm picturing the characters. I'm picturing it as if I am myself participating in that dialogue. And it's much more relatable, I think, that way, rather than having a recitation of, here's these terms, you must learn these terms, you must learn my way of using these terms. I guess maybe it's a lot more dynamic and a lot more fluid, his, his means of presenting things. And certainly, I, I keep challenging myself to find any logical breaks or flaws in, in Plato's work, and I have not yet found one. Now, I haven't read necessarily all of it, but I think I'm probably about two-thirds of the way there. 
I just find there's something very powerful in the language that he uses and the analogies that he uses. I mean, even that analogy in the Mino that I mentioned earlier, the, the scene where he brings the slave and he shows this, the square and the triangle to the slave and derives the knowledge that the slave actually holds about that that's not actually being taught, but it's, it's almost innate. And that was a very powerful scene and analogy, I think, that, that we can all understand. The dialogue form is such a powerful medium if done right. Many have tried to replicate Plato's success and uh, very few have succeeded because it's so difficult to accomplish all those things you mentioned. Like on the one hand, to have the arguments be rigorous and logically sound. On the other hand, to make it an emulation of an actual conversation so that the reader can picture themselves participating in it. It's really hard to accomplish that. And yeah, Plato, not only the inventor of that genre, but the master. And so that's why the, these are such a pedagogically thrilling experience to read. You're right. And I, I think that's maybe what drew me so much to Rebecca Goldstein's book, Plato at the Googleplex, is that she creates that dialogue structure in a, in a sense that I was actually picturing myself at the Googleplex and picturing this rather odd character dressed in the fashion that they would have dressed 2,400 years ago. And I'm thinking, well, why is nobody asking why this person is dressed that way? And how did he <laughs> get here 2,400 years later? It's, it's really, it's, but it's, it, it's quite, it really invokes the imagination, I think. And that's what I found really interesting in her work is that she manages to bring that philosophy into a real life, you know, or a simulation of a real life situation. I think the more we have of that, I think the more accessible philosophy will be to a wide audience, which is, you know, as, as you said, it's my mission and, and it's your mission as well. As we we're talking about common language, I was just thinking about Galileo's statement that the language of the universe is mathematics uh, and, and geometry too, for that matter. And I keep going back to Plato's Republic, where Socrates said that the first order of knowledge for a philosopher is, is of number and calculation. And, and that may strike a modern reader, I think, is very unusual, because, as you said, the people who study ancient philosophy especially are ones who are more in it for the literate or the literature aspect of it, rather than the scientific and numbering calculation aspect of it. And so... I'm thinking, though, that so much of our modern technology relies on numbering calculation, most especially now the quantum computer. I mean, the, the qubit, which is a the analog to the present-day binary bit that computers use, the, the qubit is, and this is how information will transmit in the quantum computer, it's a sphere with a triangle having three edges rotating in it. And the qubit provides a distribution of data in two states at the same time, simultaneously. So so that in the qubit, you don't know what the beginning is and you don't know what the end is. And that's what needs to be defined. And so it's, it becomes an intensely mathematical exercise for the people developing a quantum computer. I mean, there's people working on complex geometry. There's people working on new mathematical discoveries that could be relevant to it. And, and so there's an example of numbering calculation that's very much at the forefront of, of our current technology. And, and they're really pressing the, the frontiers of it to, to, to get the quantum computer to work. And so I'm just wondering if, if Socrates was correct and number and calculation is somehow woven into philosophy and philosophy is woven into number and calculation, what can a philosopher do today with technology or otherwise understanding the relevance of what Socrates said about the importance of number and calculation? I think that Plato, if he knew about the qubit and what you just described, would see that as corroboration of his intuition. 
shared by Galileo that mathematical structures underlie our the reality of our world. And this is something that Roger Penrose, the physicist, also says. He says things like complex numbers can be seen in a lot of things, you know, in like every rocket that we shoot up to space uses complex numbers to calculate the trajectory. So I think part of what Plato was saying with the numbers is that the universe is the book of nature, as Galileo put it, is written in mathematics. And therefore, in order to interface your mind with the natural world, you need that language, you know, you need mathematics. Also, I think pedagogically, I think it's something you'd appreciate, although it'll probably piss off a lot of philosophers, is that I think if you take two groups of people, you take like 50 people who know math very, very well, and 50 people who haven't had a mathematical training, but studied symbolic logic as part of their philosophy courses, which of those groups do you think is going to be more logical in their thinking? And that's a real question for you. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I, th I think the mathematics, I, I really... I really do, you know, to me, that's, that's just essential. I, I, I see the connection of that. So I guess maybe it's that question that's asked at the, at the beginning of Parmenides is all one or is all not many. And the question mm -hmm. then becomes the question of quantity and, and how do these quantities arise? There's a great passage in the Phaedo where uh, Socrates says, I don't even know how two came about. Is it the conjunction of one next to one and which came first and, and all that. And so maybe it's a question of order we can have all the symbols that we want, but what order were the symbols created in and, and what order was their meaning established in? And it seems to me that numbering calculation is what provides order to things. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I can totally explain this, but I do firmly believe this. I firmly believe that people with extensive mathematical training, it changes the wiring in their brain and they're able to just reason very logically about things that people with training in logic don't have. Now, the people with the training in logic know more logic in a strict sense. You know, they understand intricacies of logic that a mathematician doesn't know. But I mean, in terms of day-to-day -day logical reasoning, there's something about the mathematical training that just makes the mind like a ninja, just like extremely capable of navigating. And that's Plato's hypothesis, that mathematical training is like push-ups for your mind. It allows you to think well about things far from pure mathematics. So that's one reason why mathematics is crucial. So we have number one, since the universe is a book of mathematics, we need math to interface for our minds to interface with the universe. Number two, it's a tried and you know, tested and true method to improve thinking. And number three, this is something that I think is relevant to our politically polarized world today. It's nonpartisan. This is something that's never talked about, but I think it's absolutely crucial in the Republic, right? Where in book seven and eight, sorry, book seven, where we talk about the education of the citizens in the ideal state. Why is there like 10 years of math before they even start philosophy? Well, because every ethical or political statement contains ideological information. And if we talk about numbers, that's absent. So there's no biases. You know, when you talk about like proving the, the Pythagorean theorem, there's no, your ego doesn't play into it. There's no allegiances. You don't think, oh, well, if a, a squared plus B squared equals C squared, that's what the, that's what the Democrats would say, or no, that's what the oligarchs would say. You know, there's no, none of that plays into that way of thinking. It's just purely stripped away of any ideological content. And as soon as you bring in ethics and politics, which are two 
the components of philosophy for the ancients, you are unavoidably going to bring in ideological material. And you're unavoidably going to have biased teachers and biased students. And you're unavoidably going to play into the polarizing dynamics of that society. And so another thing about math is that, is that a mathematical education is, I think, for Plato, an antidote to polarization. It's a really fascinating perspective. And I, I love that when you said that math is an interface to the universe, I think that's such a such a wonderful analogy. And it, I wonder too, you know, because my my own path to Plato was a lot through geometry. And it was by learning geometry, and especially the geometry of the five solids, the five platonic solids, because he's, he's the one who introduced them to the world in the Timaeus. And so once I started to understand the geometry of the five solids and the mathematics that are inherent in it, I also understood or started to understand the incommensurability of some of the structures inside those five solids. And maybe that's where, as you said, mathematics is nonpartisan because we have the equal in mathematics. One thing equals another, and that's what math is all about. The one thing maybe that math cannot resolve is the incommensurable. And so when we get to the incommensurable in mathematics, we have to express that as a continued fraction. It never ends. So the equal never works in the, in the incommensurable. Mm -hmm. And certainly there is no equal, for example, in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, at least as Weil, as, as Herman Weil expressed it mathematically, there, it's greater than or equal to. Uh -huh. And maybe that's where both math and geometry are essential, numbering calculation, but also how that calculation expresses itself in, in the three dimensions of, of shape that we live in. And so I think there's definitely something to that connection of mathematics. And maybe there's something there that can now help to unite philosophy with the natural sciences and in, in terms of how our technological advance is going to go. The, the question of why we're developing these things, if, if philosophy can maybe put that in a mathematical sense in a way that can be appreciated by those who understand the mathematical language, is, is there a way to put a why question in a mathematical sense? A why question, like why does blank happen? Or what? Yeah, yeah. Or, or why are we doing this? Or, you know, it's just... Uh, maybe I, I tend to think of the natural sciences as being very good at seeing how things work, but maybe maybe it's the why questions that we now need to start asking in terms of our technological development and, and the power that that will give us. You know, why do we want that power? Yeah, I, I used the example earlier of the, um, the machine that's got the 500 billion circuits that's going to speak like a human. The question is why? So we know how, but the question is why? And is that maybe the role where philosophy now comes into play? And, and then how do we speak the same language so that we can communicate the importance of that question to those who are more devoted to the question of how? Yeah, I think that why questions are the domain of philosophy, unlike mm -hmm. science. It took a long time for humans and scientists to realize what science actually does, right? <laughs> and the current consensus or near consensus is that science models reality. It provides models that are descriptive and predictive. And when a model is found to not be descriptive or predictive, then it's put aside and we look for a new model. And I guess a corollary of that is that science can only answer how questions. It cannot answer why questions. So I don't think math is going to be answering any why questions soon. I mean, Again, I'm looking at this empirically, and empirically, thousands of years of philosophy 
and math and science have not been able to offer a purely mathematical or scientific answer to any why questions. When you answer, when you try to answer why questions, you're leaving math and science. And that's where the highest good comes in. So once again, I think that thousands of years of philosophical debates have led us to the idea that the only framework that we have, that we've been able to find so far for answering why questions is this hierarchy of values with the highest good at the top. And so then the question is, well, what's the hierarchy of values and what's the highest good? And that's the domain of ethics and philosophy. And that's where philosophy, again, to use this word again, can interface with science and math, but science and math cannot answer that why question. At least no one has proposed a way for that to happen yet. And, and certainly the subjectivity of judgments as to what's good, for example, I mean, what's good for you might not be good for me. And, and yeah. you know, we, especially in this world now where we have all of these images in front of us now, you know, again, brought to us a lot by technology. And we look at these images and we say, well, that's good. I want that. But we're not necessarily thinking about the effects over time. And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's where we need to, to pause perhaps. And I mean, I would love nothing more than to broaden discussions like this and really engage so many more people in in these types of discussions because i think it's rewarding for people to have that dialogue and to see that there's ideas out there that they hadn't thought about and it really i think helps to expand the mind and show them their own potential i think if they're really listening yeah i think what philosophy can offer so i guess this goes back to your earlier question what can philosophy offer to the scientists i think what philosophy can offer is to say look we all have these why questions and we want to think of them systematically and scientifically to the extent possible and mathematically. But that's not entirely possible because you know it's like purposefulness and, and why questions are not part of the purview of logic and math and science. So how can we then improve our discussions of why questions and value questions? As you said, there's subjectivity. What I think is good is not what you think is good in all cases, et cetera. Well, I think what philosophy can offer is a record of what has been tried and what hasn't been tried and what has been tried and failed and what has been tried and seemed to be promising, right? And so as I talk about in my episode that you re referenced, Why People Hate Plato, I think we've only been able to come up with three candidates for the highest good, namely virtue slash order is one, pleasure is another, and the elimination of suffering is a third. So we're still stuck on those three. So we either have to find another one that's better than those three, or we can debate the merits of those three. And I think that's a conversation that 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 framework serves to clarify things to a degree. I think that's the kind of thing that philosophy can offer scientists. They can say, okay, look, here's a record of the different major questions and the different approaches that we've taken and the different results. But in order for that to actually be possible, we need to also clarify our language. As you said, as brought up, there's this plethora of really confusing, stupid terminology that is a burden to philosophy. So we need to clarify our language we need to create interchangeable parts so that when we talk about Kant and we talk about Aquinas and we talk about Plato, we can talk about the same thing. And we need to narrow down the available options based on what has been tried over time and what hasn't and what has worked and what hasn't. So I think that's kind of, that's the roadmap for how philosophers can make philosophy relevant to scientists. I love that. And, and, you know, when you said that philosophy offers a, a record, uh, it brings me back again to that idea that we talked about earlier, the, the memory that philosophy offers. Uh, and maybe that really is the central role of philosophy is, is, a, is the memory function of all of this data and all of this knowledge. Philosophy 
ties it together with meaning and a record with meaning. And again, I go back to the Mino, you know, the knowledge is the account of the reasons why. If we don't understand the account, we don't understand why we are at this point as we are, and we don't understand necessarily why we're doing the things that we're doing, especially with technology and its power. And so I think the account of the reasons why is so critical and essential right now. I don't want to keep you too longer. And we've, we've had such a great discussion. I'd love to do this again. And just so many fantastic ideas and, and other things that we can explore. If we want to end maybe on the thought again of the, the nature of time, you know, when we were talking about the assumption that time is linear and you mentioned that there's an assumption that there's an exponential increase over time, this is all linearity. And I'm just wondering what you would think would happen if people thought that time, instead of being a straight line with two limits, beginning and end, instead of being a straight line, what if people thought that time was a circle? Your podcast interview on Plato's Critias made me think about this. So there's talk about how time really operates as a circle. And certainly at the beginning of the Critias, there's the story of how civilizations have been destroyed in, in the past. There are civilization-destroying events. I think there was an allusion to an asteroid strike. And we know, you know, 60 billion years ago or 60 million years ago, there was a, an asteroid that struck near Chicxulub and that apparently wiped off all of the life on Earth, including any knowledge that might have been on Earth at that point. And we look at things like the pyramids are monuments of ancient knowledge that we don't really understand how it all came to be and what purpose there was. And so these civilizations and their knowledge come and go. But what if time is like a circle? So instead of straight line where knowledge begins and ends, Maybe knowledge just, just rotates and, and never reaches a beginning and end. And so I'm just wondering in terms of how our approach to living and the technology, you know, the, the way we do things, how would that differ if people just thought that there was not two limits, but no undefined limits, and, and then everything is, is then maybe within our scope? Yeah, well, now we're kind of venturing into um, dangerous territory, but it's like Graham Hancock or... Uh... Was the other guy? There's a few kind of maverick archaeologists who who think, you know, what if there was the great civilization that perished long ago, and so forth. And that's considered now a very fringe view. Academics don't even consider those as remotely plausible. But that view of history as being cyclical, as having civilizations that rise and fall, that was the majority view, I think, for most civilizations throughout history. I mean, that's how the Indians conceived of time. It's how the Greeks conceived of time. And the idea that time is linear and that we're approaching some kind of promised land or endless path of progress, that's a, that's a relatively modern view. I think that you could combine them and have both. You could have a, a kind of spiral or you could have a, a combination of different cycles and linear things. And this is something that came up in my conversation with uh, Walter Scheidel. So Walter Scheidel is a Stanford-based historian who wrote a book about the history of inequality from Stone Age till today. In our conversation, I challenged him on this linear view. I was like, so many of the things that you talk about in modernity can be seen already in the ancient Greeks. So is this dualism of modernity and pre-modern everything else, is that really a fruitful dichotomy? And he basically admitted, not really. It's the common currency in the way modern historians talk today, but it doesn't really hold that much water. And there's a lot of things that are cyclical. I mean, everything in nature is cyclical. Population dynamics of animals, I mean, deer populations, wolf populations, uh, the seasons, life cycles, El Nino, El Nina, I mean, everything comes in cycles, right? So there may be components that continue in a linear fashion, 
but there's also a lot of cycles. And I think that we've lost the cyclical view. And I think we need to incorporate that back into our framework of time. It doesn't mean giving up on the linear view completely, but there has to be a synthesis because a lot of things are cyclical and things can't go on forever. You know, it's just, it's just a simple fact. So yeah, I would just advocate for a more nuanced view where we do acknowledge that many things are cyclical and that many things, there have been many setbacks. There have been at least as many setbacks in human history as there have been marches forward. And I guess that cyclical view would maybe help with that interface, maybe with the universe that we were talking about in terms of that mathematical interface with the universe and in, in, in the sense that we don't think that the interface has a necessary beginning point, that it can really connect at any point and find its way to, and here I'll be very platonic, the absolute truth, which I guess is maybe the thing that uh, is, is maybe still hotly debated is, is there an absolute truth or is it all, is it all relative? You know, again, just trying to get a sense for if, if we were to take the cyclical view, how would that manifest itself in our technology and, and the, the things that we do now, how would we change our approach to the things we do in the future if we had that cyclical view? Well, there are many aspects you could explore here. I mean, there are many angles to answer that question, but one thing is you would be more cautious about preserving things. We generate huge amounts of data and information, and we just take it for granted that we will have that information stored. You know, like, yeah, like everything on Wikipedia, everything online, everything in our libraries, everything, it'll all be stored because we'll always have bigger hard drives to store those things. Well, you can imagine somebody thinking that in the Library of Alexandria, like, oh, all of these 30, 40,000 scrolls here, this is knowledge that we're going to have forever because there are, there's other libraries, there's people reading them, there's people copying them. So why would these books ever cease to exist? And yet 99.9% .9 of them cease to exist. So at the very minimum, we would be much more cautious about the knowledge and information that we've accomplished and we would try to secure its longevity. That's a powerful image you give of the Library of Alexandria, which of course is not with us anymore and that knowledge that was lost. And one could imagine what would happen if Wikipedia were all of a sudden the, the database were to disappear and it, we found it, that it hadn't been backed up. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, well, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes constant effort, like Wikipedia or anything else like that. Mm -hmm. It continues to exist because there's people continuing to buy, I mean, if you uncovered a hard drive from 20 years ago, wouldn't work on any device today, right? So you have to constantly change your, your hardware, transfer the data, modify it so that it works with new operating systems, et cetera. That's, there's a lot of effort involved in preserving information. It's always been the case. The mediums have changed, but the effort, the sweat, the time and energy required to preserve information is still there. It's still a lot of, of work. And unless we put in that work, we will not continue to have the information that we enjoy now. I love that. Maybe it's then a question of taking that circularity view. Maybe that would define a common cause for us or help it to, to define a common cause. Whereas if we're in a linear view, each one of us thinks that we can take our individual paths. But if it's all circular, if it all ties into one circle, then you know, we are tied together in some sort of a common thread of time, perhaps. And, and as you said, it, it takes that effort, maybe a combined effort then to preserve that. But there is a danger to the circular view, though. You know, Nietzsche wrote this essay called On the Uses of History for Life or something like that. And he makes the paradoxical claim that 
at some point when you there's a there's an amount of historical knowledge beyond which if you if you go beyond that it kills your desire for life and he says that it's equally important for an organism or a civilization to learn to forget as it is to remember so there is a danger that knowing too much of the past and thinking of the future as consisting of cycles that will repeat will kill our morale and our motivation and enthusiasm for life and so i don't know maybe the linear view is better after all you know <laughs> like maybe it's better to not see the catastrophes looming on the distant horizon and just enjoy life now i don't know it's a complicated question but there's definitely pros and cons and serious pitfalls in both both mindsets no no right answers i guess the conundrum that plato often provides us i guess is just we need more discussion and so yeah. that yeah that, that's the great thing about philosophy and discussion and dialectic and dialogue and you know, it just absolutely uh, and we you know we've, we've had such a great discussion here today that i think that this is i think i think we may have actually declassified some of the <laughs> some of the context of ancient philosophy and put it into the world of modern world of technology and i, I really uh, am looking forward to thinking about we, what we've uncovered today and, and the themes that we've used and talked about, because I think they can be built on. And so, Jack, I, I just really want to thank you for your time and for being here and for this great discussion. And I uh, can't wait to hear your next Ancient Greece Declassified episode, always incredibly thought-provoking and illuminating, and so glad to, and honored that you're here today with us. Well, thank you, James. It's been a real pleasure. There are a few things in life I like more than talking to people who love ancient philosophy, but also have a firm grasp of the latest technological advances as you do much more than I do. So it's been super fun. Thanks for having me on. That's great. Thank you.